So, so have most of you eaten in that little restaurant over on Gold Boulevard called Two Minutes? Right? Yeah, yeah. You guys have eaten there, right? Now, Vicky and I haven't eaten there yet, but I've heard I've heard that when you go in there, you don't necessarily sit at a table with just your own party, but you kind of just sit with whoever happens to be there in whatever open spot is available. Is that right? And and that's probably a that's probably a pretty good way to meet people. So now just imagine with me today, since you've been there, imagine that you're sitting there. You go in there this afternoon to eat, and you sit down at the table beside someone that you don't know, and that person smiles and extends their hand, and they introduce themselves, and they tell you a little bit about themselves, and then they say, well, that's enough about me. Who are you? Now, apart from your name, apart from giving them your name, what else would you say? If you are still someone that's still working, you may say, well, I'm a teacher, or I'm a business owner, or I'm maybe a mechanic. If you're a parent, maybe some of you ladies have said, well, I'm a mother of three, or I'm a, a grandmother or a great-grandmother. And all of those things are good, but they don't really answer the deeper question of who you actually are. And maybe that's a good thing, because if other people knew us the way that we know ourselves, they may not want to sit by us anymore, right? So what, so what we do is you and I select aspects of our identity that we want to highlight and ones that we want to conceal. And because of that, as, as people move through different stages in their lives, like our baptism candidate is doing, moving from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, we're continually crafting an identity for ourselves. Kind of like the orangutan who was being experimented on by government scientists, and they, they were working on this drug to enhance cognitive ability. And after having a full course of the medication, the orangutan escaped. So the scientists locked down the facility. They launched a, a full-scale search of the base and, and of the neighboring towns. And finally, a week later, the animal was discovered in the city's library, where it was reported that officials found him sitting at a desk in the reading room with two books open in front of him. One, one was the Bible. And the other one was Darwin's Origin of Species. And, and, and they asked him, what, what are you doing? And, and the, the orangutan just kind of scratched his head and he said, I've been sitting here trying to figure out whether I'm my brother's keeper or my keeper's brother. <laughs> Talk about an identity crisis, right? But we all struggle with identity, don't we? In, in lots of different ways. Now, you, you may try to build your identity from your family heritage, or you may try to build it from your ethnicity, or you might define it by your education or your, your income or your appearance, but no matter how or when you do it, the question of who am I is one that everyone ends up asking themselves at some point or another in their life, and it's a question that desperately needs to be answered because your understanding of who you are determines how you live your life. And Paul's letter to the Romans that we've been looking at over these last few weeks is going to address that with us today. Now, for you folks that have been with us, if you remember back through our series in chapters 1 through 3 in Romans, the Apostle Paul has told us that all human beings, without exception, have fallen short of the glory of God because of their sin. Chapters 3 through 5, he told us that God justifies us not because of our intrinsic value or because of anything external that we do, but simply on the basis of faith in him alone. 
And now as we begin this chapter 6, and Paul has walked us through the redemption process, he's going to address himself today to what comes next, which is our transition from being identified with that old life of sin to the newness of life that we have in Jesus Christ. And we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. So here now the words of the true and living God. The apostle Paul wrote, well, then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For he died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. And I think it's really a kind of an amazing work of the Spirit that we were going to have a sermon on baptism anyway, just because it's next in the series. But now we actually have a baptism to perform, and I think that's just incredible. You know, when I was still in school, my Russian history teacher said something to me that uh, during the course of a lecture that I've never forgotten. He said, you can never understand another country or another person until you understand how they see themselves. Right? You can't understand another country or another person until you really understand how they view themselves. And I think that's really profound because not everyone in the world sees themselves as they actually are. There's a true story about the time that the boxer Muhammad Ali was taking a long-distance flight across the country and that during the trip, the airplane ran into a storm that caused so much turbulence that the pilot had to turn on the fastened seatbelt. The stewardess, you know, of course, went up and down the aisle to make sure that everybody was complying with that. And, of course, wouldn't you know that everybody on the entire plane had their seatbelt on except guess who? Muhammad Ali, right? So the stewardess said, you know, excuse me, Mr. Ali, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you, but you really have to put your seatbelt on. And kind of half kidding and half serious, the boxer said, ah, oh, don't worry about me. Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the stewardess replies, you're absolutely right, Mr. Ali, but Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> but but some, somewhere in the spectrum between our orangutan, you know, with uncertainty as to who we are and where we fit in, to the other extreme of assume, assuming that we are Superman, somewhere in the middle, we have to identify where the answer lies. And the Apostle Paul provided that right in the middle of our scripture reading today, in verse 3, when he asks, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? And when you were, we were joined into his death. And at first glance, that doesn't sound so appealing, does it? I mean, because, you know, death is, is not something that we really talk about very much. Now, most of you probably know, and I, and I ask his permission first before I tell this story, so. But you probably know that Vicki and I have been very close with Dr. Buddy and, and Wendy Hollyfield for a very long time. And probably most of you also know that Vicki's brother is a professional photographer. Okay, so with those two things in mind, the very first time that the two of them met was at one of our Christmas parties. And they, they struck up this conversation, and Bob was telling Dr. Buddy that he had received a request to take photographs at a funeral, you know, take photographs of the deceased to send to a family member who lived too far away to come to the burial service. And Bob was saying, of course, you know, he wanted to make the pictures look as nice as he could, but 
And he thought that sounded really weird to have nice pictures of a, of a dead person, right? And, uh, and he said, Dr. Buddy said something to him that he's never forgotten. He still tells the story today. He said, Dr. Buddy said, I, I know what you mean. He said, a lot of times folks will walk up to the casket and, and look at the person and say to me, wow, they sure look good, don't they? They sure look good, don't they? And he said, but the whole time he's thinking, look good? What do you mean they look good? Holy catfish, they don't look good. They're dead. I didn't quite catch the accent, right? They're dead. They don't look good. They're dead. You see, the Apostle Paul is telling us today that the way to find our truest identity, the way to know who we really are and what we really are, is for us to finally find ourselves by being buried into death and into the waters of baptism with Jesus Christ so that we can be identified with the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior. And so since baptism is so important of an issue, it's something that we really need to think about and to talk about a whole lot more than we do. But, you know, honestly, how, how often do you and I think about our baptism? Just take a moment and, and try to remember it if you can, if you had one as an adult. You think about it once a week? All right, let's see some hands. Think about it once a week? Okay, that's good. You think about it once a month? Okay. How about do you think about it when someone else gets baptized? Okay. All right, maybe. But most of us, including myself, probably don't think about our baptism all that much or all that often, if ever, and that's not good. Because it's clear from our scripture reading that our baptism in Christ Jesus is important, so important that Paul says we need to reflect on it again and again personally and communally on what baptism says to us about who we are so that in turn we'll know how we should live. One author says that baptism gives us a new way of, of seeing and of being. And for that reason, it must be the agent that flavors and shapes our worship, our schooling, our family, and our personal lives. And he continues, just like the Old Testament believers were instructed in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to talk about the commandments of God when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. He says our baptism should be like that. And he says we need to talk about it when we have family meals and when we visit our friends. And he closes by saying we need to preach it, we need to teach it, we need to talk it, and we need to walk it and walk out that baptism in every area of our life. And as we kind of plunge into it today, there are really there are dozens of ways we could look at the subject of baptism. We could look at maybe the methods of baptism, whether it should be done by sprinkling or by immersion. We could talk about candidates for baptism, whether uh, we do infant baptism or adult baptism. We could even look at whether you uh, do baptism on profession of faith alone or just after a lengthy catechism class. And we're going to get to all those eventually in the course of, of several sermons, but I want to limit the scope of what we're talking about today to the new identity that baptism conveys in Jesus Christ and to hear Paul's challenge to us to live it out. Because, you know, it's pretty obvious just from the show of hands, we don't dwell on it all that much, do we? And evidently, neither did the Romans. And you can tell that from the tone of Paul's letter. You, you can almost hear him begging, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined with him in his death? It, it almost sounds like a question born out of frustration, doesn't it? He's saying, did you forget? Didn't you know? 
Didn't anybody tell you? Do you ever give it any thought at all that your baptism identified you with the death of Christ? And you know, it's possible, it's just possible, the reason could be because the word itself is not something that we're all that familiar with or maybe that immediately clear. Because the word baptism is just an English transliteration letter for letter sound for sound of the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to emerge. And it's not even a religious word, right? You could just, just as easily say to your wife, honey, you, you need to baptize those dishes in some hot soapy water if you're going to get off all the, the dried-on tomato sauce. So baptism just means to, to dip or, or, or to immerse or to, to wash or to, to drench or to plunge it into. And in some contexts, it could even mean to be dyed into or colored. You know, and the Romans really understood it. And they would have understood what Paul was getting at because it was a a common sight to walk past garment makers and see cloth being dipped into a vat of dye and changed into a different color. In the same way, to be baptized into Christ is to be be dipped in or or immersed in or drenched in or, or to be colored with, if you will, with Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be kind of cool to imagine a baptism service where you'd see the candidates standing there all dripping wet and then all of a sudden they turn green? We're not going to do that to you, Liam, I promise. Now, that's funny, but, you know, maybe it would help us really understand what baptism is all about if there was a visibly discernible difference on that person that was baptized that would color the rest of their whole lives. And Paul is almost begging us for it. He's saying, look at your baptism. Look at your drenching. Look at your coloring with Jesus and pay attention to it. Don't you know that if you are in Christ, you are immersed into Jesus? So that when Christ died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he rose to a new life, you rose to a new life. So that baptism now is a visible sign. It's a a constant reminder. It's a road sign pointing us to who we are in Jesus and affirming our identity in him. And it tells us that we're a part of a brand new people. The part of the people of Jesus. And it tells us, We're no longer immersed into Adam, but into Christ. And it tells us we're no longer subject to spiritual death because of Adam's sin, but that we have been brought to new life because God has immersed us in his one and only son. And now it's his image that we see reflected. Another story that I want to share with you in the former Soviet Union in the year 2000, a large group of political prisoners was being released and among them was a Hungarian national by the name of Andres Tomas. He was a soldier that was taken prisoner by the Red Army in 1945, and his regiment had been uh, fighting around Auschwitz and Krakow when he was captured and taken to a detention camp near St. Petersburg. When he got there, though, he, he got really ill, and to avoid infecting the other prisoners, he was taken to a military hospital at another camp about 500 miles away from there. And even though he recovered physically, he never recovered mentally or or emotionally from his capture. And in January of 1947, he was transferred to a psychiatric hospital where he was placed in solitary confinement. And since men who were in hospitals were deleted from lists of prisoners of war, the Hungarian officials lost track of him, couldn't identify his whereabouts or trace where he had been taken, and so he was eventually declared dead. And in all reality, he basically was dead because his existence now transformed into five decades 
of agonizing loneliness that were only punctuated by the abuse of guards who would come into his room occasionally to abuse and to beat and dehumanize him year after year after year. Until finally in the year 2000, a Czechoslovakian doctor who was working with other patients in the facility happened to notice him and was able to identify him and petition for his release. And it was granted. And on August 11th of the year 2000, he was officially discharged. And with this release paperwork complete and he being ready to go, the doctors placed Tomas in a wheelchair and, and started pushing him down through the hallways to freedom. But before they got to the door, they asked the man, would, would he like anything? Did he need anything? And you know what the first thing he asked for was? The very first personal item that he asked to hold after five decades of basic solitude was a mirror. He hadn't seen himself in over 55 years. And when he held that mirror in front of him, he took a look into his face and then he put it in his hands and he began to sob uncontrollably. And you've seen your face at age 20. And then you see it again at age 75 after going through countless beatings. I think you and I would probably break down too. Because you know, I'm confident that there's not a single person here this morning that walked into church without having first looked into a mirror, right? Before we left the house. And I, and I know for sure that we're all going to look into another one before we crawl back in to bed tonight, but what must it feel like? What must it feel like for a man after five decades of his life or a woman after five decades of her life to not know precisely what they look like or even what they're intended to look like before you step back out into the world again? But brothers and sisters, Paul is telling us that every time we see ourselves reflected in the waters of baptism, if we've been baptized into Christ, then we're seeing someone who has been raised to new life. And we don't see that image of our old selves anymore. He's telling us that every baptismal font calls out to us to live a life identified with Jesus and to clothe ourselves in him and to put away all of that stuff that marked us before we died and rose with him and then to live like we're actually different. To remember that baptism is a sign to the church and each of us personally that God has given us a brand new way of seeing ourselves and of seeing everyone else around us. And you know, in light of all of the, the hatred and the violence that seems to be swirling around our country these days, that may be more important now than ever before. To see, those, to see ourselves and those things around us and the people around us through the lens of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I want to close with a, a quote from a, a book by Dr. John Hawkinghorn that I think really addresses that. He's an English theoretical physicist and professor of mathematics at Cambridge from 1968 to 1979. And, uh, and even though I wouldn't automatically endorse all of his work, he did write something very insightful I want to share with you. And it's just about a paragraph long, but I think it's very profound. So, so please, please listen closely. This is what he wrote. He said, reality is a multi-layered unity. When I look at someone, I can perceive another person as an aggregation of atoms or as an open biochemical system in interaction with the environment, or as a species of homo sapiens, or I can perceive a person as an object of beauty, or as someone whose needs deserve my respect and compassion, or as a brother or sister for whom Christ died. And all are true and all mysteriously cohere in that one person that I'm viewing. 
to deny even one of these levels is to diminish both that person and myself, the perceiver. It would do less than justice to the richness of reality. But in God the Creator, the ground of all that is, these different levels find their lodging and their guarantee. He is the source of connection, the one whose creative act holds in one the totality of science, aesthetics, ethics, and religion, all working as an expression of his reason, his joy, his will, and his presence. And this interlocking character of the world of creation finds its fullest expression in the concept of sacrament. And that's what we're going to do today. The sacrament of, of baptism that we're going to be sharing, that's an outward and visible sign of an inward spiritual grace. And he, he closes by saying, and those sacraments point to the greatest sacrament compared to which all others are types and shadows, namely the incarnation of Christ, in which the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And we have beheld his glory as the glory of the only Son of the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, that same Lord commands us, commands us to go into all the world and to baptize disciples into himself so that those who are in Christ find themselves vitally connected to Christ in death, died in the crimson of his blood, and raised again to new life in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we come now to ask that you would make your spirit so present with us, Lord. We ask that uh, you would hover over us as we gather in prayer and open our hearts to receive your holy fire. We ask, Lord, that you would be among us as we go to the fountain of baptism so that with one voice and one song we may praise your name in joy and thanksgiving as we come together. In Jesus' name, amen.